Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 184, and we're going to talk about something that people called me out on last time, and that is, what is the best stealth van? And the answer's obvious, it's a minivan. We're also going to talk about desulfating your lead-acid batteries. It's actually pretty easy. Uh, going to visit a place in Boston that takes you inside the world, and we're going to have a product review of a toaster, because I like toast. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Sorry I'm a day late. I have so much stuff going on right now. It's crazy. I just launched a new cruise. We're going to do a river cruise in November of 2024, and it's taking up all my time. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Unfortunately, it's pretty expensive, but hey, if you'd like to join a bunch of us and sail down the Danube, go ahead and check it out in the link. Uh, anyway, let's dive right in here. Uh, last week, I talked about stealth vehicles and how stealth means being ignorable and not invisible, and I said the best stealth van was a plain white cargo van, and that is true if you limit your context to just cargo vans. There's other vehicles out there, and in fact, there's no question, as several of you pointed out, the stealthiest van out there is the minivan, the soccer mom van, the van that people say they will never own, and then they have kids, and then they're like, oh, Jesus, this is really practical, I love it. Yeah, those. I remember when the first Dodge Caravan came out in 1984, I think it was, it might have been in 83, but I was in college in West Virginia, and some of the other kids in college there thought it was the ugliest, stupidest vehicle ever to roll the earth. One guy called it a moon buggy, and uh, I always thought they were kind of cool. <laughs> and I don't know why it was in 84 that minivans became a thing when, you know, we'd, we'd had the Volkswagen bus forever. I mean, small vans have been around for a very long time. So, uh, eh, whatever. That's, that's how it goes. And so now we have minivans. And they're everywhere. If you're in the city, if you're in the country, it doesn't matter. You see minivans everywhere, except you don't. They're completely ignorable thus making them perfect for stealth camping. But they're also good just as a camper van anyway. And if you do not have a van or you're looking at building out a new van, stop a moment and consider a minivan. Because if you haven't, you might be missing some things. And, and here are some of those things. First off, uh, they get better gas mileage. In almost every case, a regular minivan, be it a, an old Grand Caravan or a new Sienna or a new Pacifica, which is the largest minivan they make right now, uh, they just use regular gas and they're okay on gas mileage. I mean, you're not going to compare them to a Prius or anything. And they do make hybrid minivans if gas mileage is your number one thing, but you're going to get a little bit less space and a little bit reduced cargo capacity with those. So yes, compared to a cargo van, you're going to spend less money on fuel in a minivan, no question. They're also bigger than microvans. Now, hear me out here. Uh, NV200, right? Mini cargo van. I made a van out of it. It was great. Transit Connect, perfect. Promaster City, yes, all great little microvans. Minivans are bigger than those, but in one dimension, they're longer. That matters if you're trying to put in a bed. Now, my biggest problem with my NV200 was trying to fit the bed in there because I had exactly 75 inches from the 
back doors to the front seat. That's it. I'm 72 inches, so I had to fit myself in that space with a bed, and that was a big challenge. In a minivan, typically you're going to have 80 inches or maybe even more. That makes it much easier to find a bedding solution. But there's a big trade-off for that. You're going to get more length. You're going to get less height. My problem with minivan builds is that if I sit on the bed in a minivan build, my head hits the ceiling, and that wasn't the case in the NV200. So if you're somebody who's, you know, 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, in that range, a minivan is going to be great. But if you're getting up to 6 feet tall and over, you're going to have a problem with the ceiling. So just consider that. Another obvious factor about minivans is you can find anybody to work on them. I mean, you can go anywhere. You can go to Jiffy Lube, you can go to the dealer, you can go to just about any mechanic and they'll be able to work on your minivan. And I can tell you from owning a Sprinter, that's a really nice thing because I have had serious trouble finding someone to work on my Sprinter. Another non-obvious thing is uh, they're cheaper tires. You can get passenger-rated tires for a minivan. Now, you want to think about that. If you're going to really load your van up as heavy as it can be, you might want to spring for some light truck tires. But generally, you're going to be able to find cheaper tires for your minivan. doesn't mean you always want to. And there's a corollary to this, is you're going to be able to find fewer AT-type tires for your minivan. And honestly, I think they would look a little bit funny even if you did. So... Just consider that. You're going to have at least more options if you have a minivan. You're also going to get more creature features. You know, a lot of these vans we drive are pretty spartan. I know my, my Sprinter has some fun features in it, but it's missing some really obvious ones, too. You can get whatever you want in a minivan. Some of them are very luxurious, and they have power sunroofs and electric heated seats and all massage seats, and all that kind of stuff that maybe if you drive a 12-year-old van and then you get in a rental car and you're like, wow, this does a lot of stuff my van doesn't do. Yeah, you can get all that in a minivan. So if that's the kind of thing that's important to you, like a comfortable driving experience with all the little goodies, yeah, you're going to get that in a minivan. Another thing, and this is not a small thing, it's a very big consideration. Nearly every minivan these days, and even for like the past 10 years, has dual sliding doors. So you have one on both sides. This gives you some build advantages and some build challenges. My NV200 also had this, and what I decided to do was basically abandon one of the doors as far as entry and exit goes, and I used it as a second hood. Basically, I could slide open that driver's side slider and get access to all my plumbing and electrical and all that stuff, but I would never use it to get in and out of the van. I would always use the curbside one, which is, I think, safer. You will have to make that decision, too, if you do a minivan. How are you going to deal with the two doors? Some people love being able to get in either side, and that's a choice you can make, but you're going to eat up a lot of space doing that, so it's an option. And yeah, the door mechanisms and stuff can get in the way a little bit, depending on which van you get, so something to consider. One thing that I have come to think of as an advantage, but I don't always, is that the rear door of a minivan is a hatch. It opens up, and then you're out of the rain, and you can actually build a kitchen into the back of a minivan and cook right there and you're always out of the rain, whereas most cargo vans have barn-style doors in the back. 
you might prefer the barn style doors. They do have some advantages, like you can open just one, you don't need as much space, etc. But it is nice to be instantly out of the rain, and a lot of them are electric, so you can just press a button and then the back door will open for you and you can put all your stuff in. So that's something else to consider. Also, having that hanging door makes a great place to hang a bug screen, like to keep the mosquitoes out, or a shower curtain. You have this hanging roof that you can do anything you can think of. Another big advantage to minivans is that they tend to be safer. If you look at the crash test ratings of minivans versus cargo vans, minivans are usually in the car range. They've got more airbags usually, more safety features, and that is also a con because those airbags are a problem. In fact, this is probably the biggest negative thing about minivans. They've got the airbag of the steering wheel, obviously. They've got the one over the glove box, but they also now often have airbags all down the back by the windows. That can create a problem for your build. First, you have the obvious problem of screwing into that, and you don't want that. There's explosive components in there, and while it's unlikely that you could actually set the things off, it wouldn't be hard to damage them. You don't want that. The other thing is that if you do even a no-build, and you get in an accident, those airbags are gonna go off with explosive force. And anything you have in that airbag zone is gonna become shrapnel. So if you built a cabinet that was only attached to the floor and just raised to the ceiling and you got in an accident, the airbag would hit that cabinet and explode it. So my recommendation is that if you build out a minivan, disable the rear airbags. And that isn't as simple as turning a switch. You're gonna to have to do research on that and I'm not going to get into that in this small list, but it can be a little bit tactical. Another thing to consider is you're gonna have windows to deal with. This is a pro and a con. Windows let heat in, they let cold in, they can leak, they can break, but they also let light in and they also add to the stealth effect. So consider that, that you're gonna be getting something with a lot of windows and that, that's just all there is to it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with painting the inside of the window or covering it with insulation or whatever. From the outside, people are just gonna see black and with as many tinted windows as there are out there, that's not gonna draw any attention. Here's a nice thing about minivans. You can get all-wheel drive in them. It's not even hard. In fact, I used to own a 2004 Toyota Sienna with all-wheel drive, and that thing was an absolute beast in the snow. It was an extremely capable vehicle in the snow. I had it in Vermont, and I had a 15-degree driveway. I needed that. Uh, the thing was amazing. With some studded Hakapalitas on there, it was a snow beast. But... Minivans are going to have low ground clearance. You are not going to do a lot of off-roading in your minivan. Even if you make lots of modifications, these vehicles are much less capable off-road than even a cargo van purely because of ground clearance, if nothing else. They're also not rugged. They're not made for that. You know, cargo vans are kind of tough. They're expected to be beat on. Uh, minivans, not as much. So, hmm, if you're going to do a whole lot of off-roading, a minivan isn't probably for you. But... Dirt roads, mild off-roading, yeah, you can absolutely do that. I, I, I mean, my NV200 wasn't technically a minivan, but I certainly drove it off-road and didn't really have any problems. And yeah, here's one that you won't think of until you actually buy it. Minivans are much easier to insure. Nobody classifies them as commercial vehicles. You can just call up State Farm or Progressive or whoever and say, hey, I bought a 2014 Sienna, blah, blah, blah. Here's the VIN, and you've got coverage. And as for your stuff inside, you will need a homeowner's policy for that or an apartment rental policy for that, as you always do. 
but then you're covered. All that stuff that's inside your van is covered, and uh, that's harder to do with a cargo van because uh, is it commercial? Is it you know? Is, are these commercial goods? Blah blah blah. A lot of you have run into that problem. So if you're desperate to go van camping and you don't have a way to get over the insurance crisis of your cargo van, eh, minivan maybe might do it. One of the best features of a minivan is that you can park it anywhere. You can go through drive throughs You can fit in parking garages. You can fit in normal parking spaces. Uh, living in Chicago, this is a very big deal. Now, I do okay with the ambulance because the length of my Sprinter 144 is actually about the same length as a minivan, believe it or not. It's a little bit longer, but not that much longer. Uh, but still, uh, I would, having a smaller vehicle is certainly always advantageous for parking. So consider that too. Honestly, they're just easier for driving. In a minivan, what you're giving up is some of the camping comfort. You don't have as much space. You don't have as much cargo area, etc., etc. But boy, if you're the kind of person who stealth camps or sleeps in parking lots a lot, mm, minivans can really be a good answer. And there's certainly a lot of them out there. Even an old Dodge Caravan, and I would get the Grand Caravan. Um, yeah, all right, they might get beat up, but boy, you can find parts anywhere. They're not that hard to work on, and you won't have the airbag problems if you get the old one. Plus, they have those stow-and-go seats, which you can remove the seats, and you have these massive storage compartments in the floor. I don't know. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the idea. I think for me, I'm just too darn tall for a minivan. But for those of you who aren't, absolutely. It's something to consider. And, you know, hey, let me know what you've done. Uh, I, I would love to see your vans. Go ahead and send them to me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And uh, you can also share them on our Facebook group or in Discord or, or on Instagram or whatever. It, all that stuff is in the show notes. A special thank you to Robbie and Wayne for helping to support the channel here. They visited buymeacoffee.com slash built to go and bought me some gallons of diesel, which I absolutely appreciate. Because of their generosity, there are no ads. In this week's podcast, YouTube does its own thing. And I suppose it's an ad to say that I have the cruise going down the Danube River in November, but I'm not going to count that because, you know, that's like my thing. So there. Let's talk about some van life news. A uh, fair warning, I'm about to travel a whole heck of a lot, so I'm going to have to drop the news segment for a few weeks because I'm going to have to pre-record stuff. But not this week. This week I'm just sitting here in Chicago, so we'll do the van life news. Uh, California is about to pass a law that allows church parking lots to be used for emergency homeless housing. And while that might not sound like it's completely related to van life, it actually can be. Because a lot of people doing van life aren't doing it by choice. They have to live in their vehicles. And now in California, this might be a new safe place for them to find a place to park. Because if anyone's been to California recently, there's a lot of homeless folks and there's a lot of pressure to move them out. The question is to where? This might help a little bit. So some of you folks living in your vans who are in this situation, stay tuned. California might have a little bit of relief for you. Also coming up is the annular eclipse. That's this Saturday, Saturday the 14th. We're going to have an annular eclipse. Now that is not the total eclipse. It's one of those coming next year. This isn't where the sky gets completely black. This is another cool eclipse where there's a ring of fire. Basically the sun turns into a ring of fire instead of a ball of fire because, you know... It, 
it's a it's a cool event it's just not the cool event and it happens a little bit more often but it's cutting across the american southwest so it's going to be a weird weekend for traffic i have a link in the show notes to an article about places in national parks that you can go to see this i'm not sure that's the best idea but it at least shows the map and stuff and if you want to see a really cool event and you're in the desert southwest go ahead and check it out but i would recommend going to unusual places to see it like abandoned warehouses and places where people aren't going to gather because the traffic afterwards could be quite hairy after the last total eclipse there was a map that showed the traffic on google maps all all across the country and all the prime spots had red lines going in every direction because there were so many cars stuck in traffic all across the country it's kind of cool that that many people cared to see it and uh, i have to say it was one of the coolest things i've ever seen so yeah if you're in the desert southwest or thinking about going there head down saturday the 14th is the date and finally winter is coming i I think that phrase is going to be permanently in our uh, vocabulary now but with winter comes the need for heat and with the need for heat comes the burning of propane and that comes with those green bottles these green bottles are a big problem in some places because you can't throw them away because they're hazardous waste and that also means you can't recycle them so what do you do with them You're supposed to store them and carry them around with you until you can dispose of them in hazardous waste, which varies by state. It can be a big problem. Now, I know a lot of us just like throw them out, but that may not be technically legal. And if you throw them in the recycling, that can cause problems because if they're not completely empty, you've just put an explosive container in the recycling and that's not good. So... I don't have any great suggestions for you, but I do have an article about folks in Colorado, and there's a new program for dealing with these things that is being announced, and basically they're setting up centers across the state where you can bring your green bottles. It's not a great solution. Um, in, In the winter, it's very easy to go through more than one bottle a day if you're using them for heat, so... You know, I don't know what you're going to do with these things, but at least there's a little bit of help if you live in Colorado. (laughs) Tech Talk. When I was talking about batteries, um, somebody, Brian Dunning, again, mentioned that, uh, hey, what about desulfating batteries? And this isn't something I've talked about because most of us don't use flooded lead acid batteries in the backs of our vans. This is a normal starter battery kind of battery, the kind you have to add water to, although some of them are sealed. You know, a normal car battery typically is flooded lead acid. Well, there's something that can happen to them called sulfation. And um, inside a battery, you've got these metal plates that are basically dipped in acid. And over time, a sulfur compound will kind of encrust itself on those plates and that makes the battery a whole lot less efficient and you're basically not holding as much charge but there's a way to remove that sulfur without opening your battery and scraping it or anything like that and it's called desulfation and the way you do it is you apply high voltage to the battery 17 18 volts something like that but at a very low amperage so that's very very important you don't want to provide a lot of watts to the battery you want to apply a lot of volts at a low amperage and you're already i know some of you your heads are swimming like what are all these numbers and blah doesn't matter fortunately you don't have to worry about it because all you have to do is buy a desulfator (laughs) that's it some fancy battery chargers actually come with a desulfating mode but if you don't have one of those 
for under $20, you can buy a little device that you plug in and you just hook it up to the battery and it will desulfate the batteries for you. And this is a good thing to do if your battery is getting a little bit old and you're starting to notice it having a little bit less charge. It's probably not going to save your old beat up batteries like mine. It's probably not going to do anything for those. But as a part of normal battery maintenance, you check the water, you fill the cells with distilled water when they need to be filled. You should also do a desulfation six months, a year, you know, read whatever the manual says that comes with it. I'll have a link in the show notes to a simple desulfator, but it is a thing that you can do to help prolong your flooded lead acid battery life. Again, I do not recommend these batteries as leisure batteries. They need to be vented, they can leak, they require a lot of maintenance. We have moved on in battery technology, but I'm also aware that this is what people have. Some of the people get these for free because of where they work. So heck, we got to deal with it too. Product review. Yeah, folks, uh, we're going to talk about a toaster. So uh, <laughs> this toaster is a regular household toaster, but it has one distinct difference that makes it really good for van life. I didn't even know these things existed. It's a low wattage toaster. And how they make it low watts is pretty simple. It only toasts one piece of bread at a time. <laughs> it's a single slice toaster. I've never seen one of these in someone's house. I mean, everyone usually has at least a two slice toaster, if not a toaster oven. But these little things, they cost about 10 bucks. They run on household power. You will need an inverter. But they use like 500 watts, which isn't that much. That means that all you need is capacity and a reasonable inverter and you can make toast. And I've been doing it now all summer. I have one installed in the Tiki Bago and every morning I get up and make toast or bagel and it's dumb simple. <laughs> I mean, yes, it uses energy, but what's perfect about it is that you generally make toast in the morning. So you use it in the morning and you eat up some of your battery because, you know, it's an electrical heating device. It's going to use up a fair amount of battery, but then you've got all day to recharge with solar. So depending on your setup, that can work really well. And it's also optional. You know, toast is nice, but you don't have to have it. If it's been raining for four days and your batteries are a little low, well, don't use the toaster. But uh, for those of us who like toast and want a very simple, compact, lightweight, inexpensive way to make really good toast, you know, all those stovetop toasters tend to be not ideal. Well, this toaster works. And I'll have a link in the show notes to the one I've been using. Comes in colors and be pretty. It can be just black. But it is a way to make toast, even on your jackery, without too much trouble. Tales from the road. Uh, all of you are aware of the news lately, the general news, and I do not need to rehash that here. But one thing about having traveled to a lot of places is that some of the places you travel to end up in the news. I had a wonderful day in Lahaina. I knew about that tree. I knew about Front Street, all the stuff that burned down. I was there. I could imagine myself being on those streets. And I didn't think it would happen so soon, but yes, I have been to Israel. I've been to Ishtad. I've been to Haifa. I've been to Golan Heights. I've been to Jerusalem. And a lot of the things I'm seeing on TV remind me of my trip there with one pretty horrific difference. So I'm going to tell you a tale from my visit to Jerusalem 
and I'm just going to present it as it is. I don't mean to make any political statements or anything like that. This is just what I observed. So this was about 10 years ago. Took a group of people to the Holy Lands on a cruise. Remember, I'm not a religious person, uh, but I like history, and I had a great time on this trip, and I found Israel to be a wonderful place to visit. And uh, we went to Church of the Holy Sepulcher, you know, the, the Wailing Wall, the very holiest of holy places, some would say, on the entire planet. But there is a controversial building there, and um, it's on a hill called Temple Mount. And the Wailing Wall is on one side, and Solomon's son built a temple there. It was destroyed. And it's claimed by the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. And currently, at least as of last week, it was under Palestinian control, whereas the Wailing Wall and the rest of Jerusalem is under Israeli control. Now, I was not a Palestinian or an Israeli. Our tour guide was Israeli, and he told us that if we wanted to go up on the Temple Mount, we could because we're not Jewish. We were allowed, but he'd have to stay behind. And after a bit of discussion, we decided to do that. Now, the trip to the Temple Mount uh, it's just on foot. I mean, you can see this from everywhere. The reason the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, is there is because it's the place where the Jewish people can get closest to what was King Solomon's temple. Uh, and that's why it's the Wailing Wall, because they, you know, they're remembering the destruction of the temple, etc. Again, very controversial, and I'm not going to wade into there. But our experience was that we left the Israeli checkpoint and then went up these amazing stairs that were covered in parts that basically went up the side of the mountain. And then we hit the Palestinian checkpoint. Now, in the meantime, while we're in between those two checkpoints, we're in this staircase thing that we can't move off of. I mean, we were trapped, basically. And there are people with machine guns on either side of us. It's a very unusual spot on earth. You're in between two parties who really don't like each other, who have big guns, and you're not part of either party. Just a strange moment. And then we got up to the Palestinian checkpoint and everything was fine, except that somebody I was traveling with had bare shoulders. Pro tip, folks, if you're going to travel overseas, especially in the Middle East, they don't like bare knees and bare shoulders. Make sure you bring something to cover those up because you will have to do that. So, yeah, the, the poor woman I was with had to change and she actually had to take her shirt off and put on a new sh shirt. The guards wanted to watch her do this. I protested. Anyway, we sorted it out and everything was fine. But you can imagine we were a little bit on edge. This was such an unusual situation for us, but... We got up there, and the Al-Aska Mosque is there, dominates the entire hill. And no, we weren't allowed to go in there because we're not practicing Muslims, but it, it, it was beautiful. We were allowed to take our picture in front of it and everything. And what we saw was basically a garden. I mean, it was like a city park. It was gorgeous up there. It was quiet, peaceful. There were some men praying by the mosque. But the most noise and activity we saw came from this group of children playing soccer. Folks, that's what's up there. <laughs> if you want to go on the Temple Mount, what you're going to see, at least as of a week ago, were kids playing soccer. And these were all Palestinian kids. Israeli kids weren't allowed up there. Jewish kids weren't allowed up there. And this was in 2011. So 12 years later, those kids who were about 10 at the time are now 22. And as I'm watching the news, 
I have to wonder if maybe I'm watching some of those kids that were up there on that sunny day playing soccer. And uh, that's not what they're playing now. So travel can give you some perspective and uh, it's not always pleasant, but it's a very good thing for developing understanding and empathy. And while I don't understand what's going on, I'm overflowing with empathy. A place to visit. No, I'm not going to talk about Israel. I'm going to talk about Boston. <laughs> Boston, Massachusetts, but I am going to talk about another religion. Uh, and that religion is Church of Christ Scientist, founded by Mary Baker Eddy of Swampscott, Massachusetts. In fact, her grave, I'm sorry, it's not a grave. Her resting place is still there. Uh, rumors have it that she has a telephone in her tomb so she can let people know when she wants to come out. Uh, that was installed over 100 years ago, but, you know, Anytime she's ready. Anyway, <laughs> you can't visit the tomb. I mean, you can visit the gravesite, I suppose, but you, you can't go in the tomb and use the telephone. What you can do is go to the Church of Christ Scientist building in Boston and see an amazing structure called the Maparium. In the 1930s, they built this structure inside their building that is basically the globe inside out. And you walk inside and the entire thing is constructed of stained glass and it glows and it is gorgeous and beautiful. And it gives you a completely different perspective on the world. Instead of being on it, you're in it or you're rather above it with a 360 degree view of it. You're literally on a bridge walking through this globe. So if you dropped something off the edge, it would land in Antarctica. <laughs> and if you looked straight up, you'd be looking at the Arctic and then all around you is the globe, but it's frozen in time. And this gives you a really interesting perspective because you're not looking at the globe of today. You're looking at the globe of almost a hundred years ago. And there are things on the map and things that aren't on the map. For example, the Belgian Congo is on the map. That is not a thing anymore. Israel is not on the map because that wasn't there until the forties. There's a lot of that. USSR is there but we don't have one of those anymore. So it's a completely beautiful, interesting experience. Yes, you're going into a religious institution, but they do not proselytize or anything. If you want to learn more about their religion, you can, but Church of Christ Scientist is not one of these evangelical organizations that's going to knock on your doors. They have very few members, but a whole lot of money for some reason. That's an interesting organization. That's probably worth a Wikipedia look uh, on its own, Church of Christ Scientist. But at any rate, this is open to the public and you can go in uh, just as a tourist and see this amazing structure that's been there almost 100 years. So I'll have a link in the show notes on how you get there. I've been there many times. It's called the Maparium. One word of warning about the Maparium. They don't allow photographs. No selfies. I, I, I hate this. I really wish they would do this. But they do sell postcards. So uh, when I'm faced with this, what I will often do is take pictures of the postcards and post those. It's not as good. And it's pretty easy to cheat these days too. But there you have it. Resource recommendation. This was a resource that I loved as a kid. In fact, I had a, I 
think I had a lifetime subscription at one point, although my life's not over and I don't get the su subscription anymore. Anyway, and it is to Consumer Reports magazine. Consumer Reports, as an organization, it's a nonprofit, so they don't have advertising. They just make money selling their magazines and books and stuff like that, and these days with website subscriptions, and they just review things. If you like the product review section of this podcast, well, that's what they do, but with everything and in much greater detail. They will say, oh, we're going to do washing machines. They will go out and buy one of every major washing machine and put it through its paces and then talk about it. They also do vehicles. They spend a lot of time on vehicles. Now, there are quibbles to be had with their studies. They tend to focus on things that some people might not care about. For example, Land Rovers are always ranked really low. But anyone who's owned a Land Rover knows that they are really good at doing off-road stuff, and that isn't something they really test on the way that we would. You know, there's things like that. But for a general overview about something that's good or not, Consumer Reports really is a great place to start. So they have a website. You can subscribe to the magazine. But really, if you're just trying to figure things out, go ahead and have a look. And one thing they do is every year they sell the annual auto edition. Uh, it's, it's a, it comes out in April, I think. And it has a listing of every single automobile of like the last 10 years and its repair records. Now, they don't tend to do cargo vans, but minivans they have all the minivans there and you can see like say oh the 2014 grand caravan had a terrible electrical problems and the 2015 sienna had really bad body wear you know whatever it might be they will have a listing there and a rating from owners of the vehicles about whether they would buy them again it's a good resource and, and heck you don't have to buy it they have it at every library in the country i'll have a link in the show notes it's consumerreports.org uh one caveat personal thing i think their medical coverage is terrible i stopped subscribing because they were promoting all kinds of unproven alternative medicine and i don't have a lot of tolerance for that so you know that's my two cents you make your own decisions there but other than that for tools and vehicles and washing machines and things like that i find them a really good resource Well, folks, thank you very much for putting up with me being a day late. I absolutely appreciate you tuning in each week. We're going to have some weird episodes coming up, and it's because of my travel, but that's okay. That's actually not unusual anymore. <laughs> Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Tupac Shakur, who said, Behind every sweet smile is a bitter sadness that no one can ever see and feel. <laughs>